Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. So glad you could join me for this week's episode as we talk about the Men's Frozen Four, which happens this week in Pittsburgh. I will be there to cover it live uh, for Hockey Sense with Chris Peters on Substack. We'll have a lot more coverage over there. Uh, We also have a great guest that will help us preview the Men's Frozen Four, but talk about a lot of other elements of hockey as well. He is Nate Ewell, the Deputy Executive Director of College Hockey, Inc., which is essentially the marketing arm of college hockey in uh, in men's college hockey, does a lot with recruiting, uh, does a lot for educational purposes for players and their families, but also very helpful to the media in terms of uh, learning more about the storylines of the Frozen Four, lots of great stats. They have a, a tremendous portal for uh, uh, stat keeping and, and looking at the national scoring leaders at collegehockeyinc.com. But uh, Nate is also just a, a really unique person in the game of hockey. I think he's had a really cool career that has touched a lot of different places. He was with uh, the Michigan State University, started his professional career in college hockey as their SID, You know, working for the legendary Ron Mason. He also worked for the Washington Capitals for a period of time and, and was you know essentially Alex Ovechkin's handler uh, for, for, for the better part of his time with the Caps, but he was also a very innovative sports PR person. I think Nate's a great example of how you can help turn your passion into a career, even if you are not a player, coach, or executive. And he's a guy that's just been really invested in, and involved in the college game. So I thought we could get him on here to preview the Men's Frozen Four, but we could also talk to him about his career and give a little something for, even if you're not a college hockey fan, I think he has a really unique career path that uh, is fun to follow. So we we did talk with Nate about you know the previewing the tournament, and we recorded that on Monday. So I did want to let you know there's going to be a little bit of information in that interview that uh, isn't as relevant as it was when we recorded it. And that's because on Tuesday, the University of Massachusetts announced that four players that will be part- that were to be participating in the men's Frozen Four will not be able to due to contact tracing protocols. 
And that includes their starting goaltender, Philip Lindbergh, who's been so brilliant down the stretch this season, helping the UMass Minutemen win their first ever Hockey East tournament title, get through the regionals. He, he only, he's basically has allowed only four goals, I think, in his last five games. So he's been absolutely remarkable. So that's a huge loss for them, even though they do have a, an experienced starter in Matt Murray as kind of their number two. Uh, he's He's got 84 games of college hockey experience, and, and you know he's been a, a quality goaltender. So UMass is kind of uniquely qualified to absorb that loss, but it's hard to deny how well Lindbergh has played. UMass also will be losing their leading goal scorer, Carson Gusevich, who had 17 goals this season after transferring from St. Lawrence to reunite with Greg Carvel. And, and it is really unfortunate that he will be out. He had four goals in the regionals, was just an outstanding player for them in that uh, in getting them to this point. Certainly has a hand in that, but those guys will not be able to play. Additionally, uh, backup goaltender Henry Graham and depth forward Jerry Harding are also going to be out of the lineup. And so... That essentially leaves UMass with one goaltender. As I mentioned, Matt Murray, he's got the experience. But if he gets hurt, what happens? Well, I'm told that one of the student equipment managers, and this is not a joke, one of the student equipment managers for the Minutemen was a goaltender in high school, and he will be suiting up for the team in the Frozen Four as the backup. Obviously, they're they're kind of hoping that doesn't have to happen, but we ha- absolutely have a men's Frozen Four e-bug situation. And uh, what a dream for that young man uh, to, to, to be able to suit up for the team that he's been working for all year. Uh, but unfortunately, this is kind of what we've been dealing with all season is that there is a lot of unpredictability. There are a lot of protocols that have to be uh, followed. And we have to have really strict rules in order to have the events like the Frozen Four. You know, we saw two teams pull out after arriving at the regionals, you know, Minnesota or sorry, Michigan and Notre Dame both you know, arrived, had positive tests, had to leave. It was super unfortunate that they were out of the tournament at that point. St. Lawrence wasn't even able to get to the tournament because they had to drop out due to COVID protocols as well. So this has been rearing its ugly head all season long, and we're just continuing to see that. Um, you know, so I will keep a running file, you know, obviously the with the podcast, it's hard to keep information current as we record this and things change. So I, I recommend that you go to Hockey Sense with Chris Peters, and that's hockeysense.substack.com or chrispetershockey.com to see the Men's Frozen Four preview. I will keep updating it as frequently as news breaks. Um, I will be going to Pittsburgh for the Men's Frozen Four, so I'll be on site and trying able to kind of track some of those things. We obviously hope that what happened with UMass is, is an isolated incident and we don't have any more players that are, are forced out or any teams or that we lose games. That would be an absolute disaster. I know there's been a lot of consternation among fans about, you know, why didn't we have this tournament in a bubble? Um, and it's a good question to be asked because obviously we were just able to go through the the men's and women's basketball tournaments, uh, very minimal issues there where only a few teams were were end up having to drop out of those tournaments. Uh, the women's college hockey tournament also was able to be completed in a bubble format. I mean, there are a lot of logistical things that happened, but we had regionals at four different sites for the men's tournament. We're having the Frozen Four two weeks after the regionals end. It was kind of asking for something like this to happen. So in hindsight, unfortunately, what it, it's regrettable what happened. But we're going to continue to preview this. 
definitely listen to what uh, Nate and I have. We have basically about a 20-minute preview of the tournament, and then the rest of it is more uh, talking about Nate's career and just kind of the various ways that people can get involved in hockey. And, and there's some great advice and some great notes in there and a lot of anecdotes about uh, about various things that Nate has experienced in his career and, and some of them similar to my own. So before we get to the interview with Nate, I just want to remind you, if you haven't yet already, please subscribe to this podcast, rate, review, uh, you know, definitely help us get up those podcast charts so more and more people can listen to this. I've had great feedback so far. Thank you so much. You can always hit me up on Twitter at Chris M. Peters if you have questions or if the, you know if you're we're not on the podcast app that you regularly use, please let me know and we'll make sure that we uh, we try to get you hooked up uh, wherever you get your podcasts. It should be pretty much everywhere, uh, at least on the most popular sites now. And also, if you want to support this podcast, you'll notice we don't really have any ads or anything. Um, the only ads that I'm giving you are the ads for my own website because that's really the engine that drives this whole media operation. So again, it's hockeysense.substack.com. That is the written element of this kind of media endeavor that I've I've been going since I left ESPN or since I was let go from ESPN. But you know, so this is basically, you know, if you can subscribe to that website, you're also supporting this podcast. There's a lot of great content there for you. I have my spring draft rankings coming up very, very soon. Uh, those will be available on the website. You have to be a subscriber, a paid subscriber to get access to that. And it can go right into your inbox. So definitely do not wait to subscribe. It's $6 a month, $54 for an annual. And you can also become a supporting subscriber, which allows you to pay a little bit over and above the annual if you want to support the website in that way. I cannot thank those people enough because because of them, I will be able to go to uh, the Frozen Four in Pittsburgh. It'll be my first trip in over a year. Uh, I can't believe that it's kind of coming down to it now and I'll be able to go, but really cannot wait for that experience because, uh, boy, it's been a long time since I've been out of the house. So anyway, really excited to, to get there and, and provide some great coverage. So please do subscribe to that. And uh, we're going to end our sales pitch now and send it over to my interview with Nate Ewell of College Hockey Inc. Really pleased to be joined by a man who has been super involved in college hockey at a number of levels throughout his career. He's been at the NHL level as well. And right now he is the the deputy executive director of College Hockey Inc. and has been with that company for quite some time. He is Nate Ewell. And Nate, thank you for coming on the podcast. We have so much to get to, but it is my pleasure to have you on Talking Hockey Sense today. My pleasure, Chris. And that took about four tries for me to get that, and it still wasn't great. But we're going to keep pressing on here because uh, I'm a professional and I don't want to waste Nate's time. But, but you Nate, know, Chris, you... this, this year we know that things just aren't perfect. <laughs> exactly right. If there was ever a time, I mean, now we're finally getting to the end. And if there was ever a time to be not perfect, I guess now is a time as any, as good a time as any. I'm still fumbling, but we're going to continue on. So anyway, Nate, you're, you are the deputy executive director of College Hockey Inc. If you're a fan of, of hockey, and especially if you tune in around things like the uh, World Junior Championship or the All-American game, you're going to see the College Hockey Inc. commercials. And you've had a big hand in that company from the very beginning. It's been uh, an important arm. It's essentially the marketing arm of college hockey. It kind of operates outside of the purview of the NCAA, but it's a very important piece that kind of connects 
all leagues, all teams, connects teams with recruits. So why don't you just quickly explain a little bit what College Hockey Inc. is and, and how you got involved with it? It's certainly unique. It's uh, it, it's a company that doesn't really exist in other sports. There's not a college basketball ink. There's not right. a college baseball ink. Um, but we also know hockey's unique in, in a lot of ways. And um, the biggest piece that makes a group like ours a, a priority, I guess, I, I wouldn't say it's a necessity, but a priority for, for college coaches to have is uh, the different paths that young players can take. And the fact that you know, if you're going to play in the National Football League, you play college football. That's how you get there. Mm -hmm. If you're going to play in the NBA, you play, it might only be one season, but you play college basketball. Uh, there are different paths to get to the National Hockey League. And, and what our coaches wanted to ensure was that the young players and their parents and, and all their influencers understood the benefits of the college path, understood just how good it was and how good it is. Uh, so they came up with this idea of, of creating a marketing and educational arm. And that's what our company is. We're a really small nonprofit. There's three of us that work there. And, um, and we essentially want to make sure that, that people understand just how good college hockey is and then how to get there as well. Yeah. And it's, it's been a, an organization that has evolved over time. Uh, obviously you've been there from the very beginning and we have seen kind of some of the, the the evolution of recruiting in college hockey as well with obviously, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about with recruiting is the player's options to go potentially to the Canadian Hockey League, potentially to go to the NCAA. It seems that over the course of time, um, the number of players that have chosen the other route has, has dwindled some. Uh, it's not as common. And it used to be, I mean, we're talking about, you know, fierce, fierce recruiting battles that got nasty, that got ugly. I mean, it got, there was all kinds of stuff in the press, but, uh, you know, I think College Hockey Inc. in part was developed to fight fire without having to, you know, kind of deal with the, the various things that you have to deal with through the NCAA with the, the rules and, and, and coaches kind of felt like they were fighting with one hand time behind their back. Um, and, and this allowed your organization to get out there. And, and as we've seen more, you know, more Canadian kids have come across and certainly more American kids are, have decided to, to keep the NCAA route. And we've seen a lot of elite players. I mean, when, when did you start to notice that shift where, cause I mean, when I was at the national team development program, we had guys seemingly four or five every year who would go the other way. Um, and, you know, and they were right there in college hockey's home base for a long time but they were, that, that's not happening nearly as much anymore. So when did you start to see that? No, it's not. Uh, and I'll jump back real quick to, sure. I joined in 2011. So the, the company was actually a year old by the time okay. I joined, but, uh, but still obviously getting, getting off the ground. It started late in 2009. And um, I, I think I really sensed a shift um, around the 2015 draft. And you look at that draft class of Eichel, Hannafin, Wierenski, those guys went the college path, obviously, and I think set a standard for, hey, this is, this is how we do it. This is how the top American player does it. And, and that really was College Hockey Inc.'s concern right from the get-go was, was preserving those American players and preserving their NCAA eligibility. Um, that was more of a priority than, say, attracting the, the top Canadians. Not that that's not a priority. We, we want to have the best players we can in college hockey. But, uh, but the Americans is really... The, the bigger priority for us. And, um, and I think that that group 
sort of set the tone for everybody who's followed. And obviously not everybody plays college hockey, but it, right now it, it is, as you say, almost everybody, almost everybody that comes through that national team program is, is moving along to college afterwards. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been a really interesting process to follow. And certainly, you know, one of the things that I've learned over time is that there really isn't necessarily a right way. It's going to be a different way for every single player. But there were players that were being convinced that one way is better than the other or, you know, you know, the only way to get to the NHL is this way. Um, and what we found, especially with the elite players, they're going to get there one way or the other. So if and, and most of them are now following the more traditional path. But again, not the only path, but it's a more it's the one that's familiar to, to American you know, sports fans. And what we see in college hockey is a better product in the end because more players are coming. You know, we saw obviously Michigan has three players that could potentially be picked in the in the top 10 of this year's draft. And, and so that helps kind of sell the college game to more elite players. And, and it's been a, it's been fascinating to watch. But to see, you know, two of the top Canadians available for this draft are going to be U.S. college hockey players. Um, so that's kind of a kind of an interesting thing. But and and you guys have done a great job at that. We we will get back to uh, college hockey Inc. as well. But we're here to talk about the men's Frozen Four, which will start this week in Pittsburgh. And you know, one of the things that you do as part of your job is you compile storylines. And you know, every every conference has their own PR department, and they they do a great job. Every school has their SIDs. Um, but what College Hockey Inc. does is it kind of consolidates that and, and really helps us, especially you know those that cover the game at a national level, to get all the information necessary. So I think you have a really unique perspective because you follow the game on such a national level and a conference-by-conference conference level. And you also have your podcast with Brad Schlossman, who we had on last week um, with College Hockey Today, which gives probably the most comprehensive look at college hockey uh, that, you can, that you can ask for. So, you know, Basically, to start off, one of the things that stood out to me in your most recent notes package that you sent around was the fact that, you know, these participants in the the men's Frozen Four, many of them had a lot of juniors and seniors on their roster. And that's another thing that we're seeing more as players are staying longer in college hockey. But as we've seen, that seems to be the path towards the national championship. So I just wonder what you think, you know, what do you think is the reason that a lot of these programs are able to, to keep those players around and then you know, what, how they built a, a program that, that, you know, allows veteran players to thrive as they have. I think uh, just the environment that they're in, it, it, it is one of those situations where uh, you don't want to leave necessarily. And you saw that right. with the, with these guys that, that even the guys that left for North from North Dakota this past week, mm -hmm. whenever you listen to them talk about the decision, they didn't want to leave. And I think that's pretty unique from a, uh, a developmental standpoint to be in a place that uh, that you don't want to take that next step necessarily. I mean, uh, the players get prepared and do make that next step, but there's something pulling them to, to college the whole time. Um, they'll be watching, you know, th these guys that, that left North Dakota will be watching North Dakota games for the rest of their lives and following the fighting Hawks. And, and uh, I think that's, um, that's something that is really important to our, our schools really important to our coaches. And it's a big reason that, that you do see the commitment that players make towards their, uh, to their schools. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, we like to put Jack Eichel in our videos and things like that. And these one and done guys, Dylan Larkin, <laughs> um, players like that. 
But for the most part, most of the 70% of the players in the, in the NHL who played college hockey played three or four years. It's really takes that amount of time to develop if you're not one of those superstars. So um, I, I think as players look up to those guys in the NHL, they see, well, more and more are, are staying three or four years. So it makes sense for me to do that as well. Yeah. And it's also been with, with the elite players now, the desire to say, so, you know, Jack Eichel set, maybe set a standard for saying, here I am, I can, you know, come dominate college hockey and then immediately go to the NHL. But then you have Kale McCarr who stayed two years. And then you have other guys that have stayed three years. And I've never heard uh, a college hockey player say, I wish I, I left sooner. So, you know, like right. you never, ever hear that. Um, and I've heard many of them speak to, to other players and say, stay as long as you can, or as long as makes sense for you. Um, because obviously NHL development and the opportunity to earn money and make contracts and it is a big pull. And then a lot of these guys do end up coming back to finish school, which is another great, great benefit that they all, you know, earn those degrees from the places that they've been to, but um, it's been fascinating to see. And then, you know, we, you know, you look at the, what's been built over in college hockey over the, the various programs. And there, there are two in particular here uh, that I wanted to address mainly because they've, they've kind of been, you know, they were, they were the top two teams the last time we had a frozen four and, and they're obviously going to play in the, in the second semifinal in this tournament, but uh, it should be a great matchup, you know, First, we'll start with Minnesota Duluth, two-time defending national champion. What Scott Sandlin has built there, a lot of veteran players do come back. They had guys that, you know, unfortunately were robbed of an opportunity to go for a three-peat last year, um, but still have several guys that could win their third national title on this team. And then, uh, you know, I, I just, as, as you've watched, you've watched college hockey for a long time. You've seen programs get built it's very difficult to build a program with sustained success at, at, at the championship level. You can have powerhouse programs, but it's really hard to, to stay at a, at a level that allows you to regularly compete for a national championship. So based on what you've seen over the years, how special is what Minnesota, Minnesota Duluth has done so far as a program? It's really remarkable. And it's, it's remarkable that you get to a point where you just expect them to win. And, and, even going up against uh, North Dakota in that five overtime game, it's not a surprise that Minnesota Duluth, which is is 14 and 10 going into that game, comes away and wins it because it's an NCAA tournament game. It's an NCAA tournament game that goes to overtime, and that's just what they do. <laughs> they yeah, right. win all those games. Yeah, uh, I, I think one of the things I've learned as, as I've followed this is you can. it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of coaching. And you said Scott, what Scott Sandlin has built there. I think you look across this frozen four and you see four great coaches who have really put their stamp on programs. Um, and certainly, you know, Brett Larson came into a great situation at St. Cloud, but the others really built what they have. They, they have constructed yep. it from the bottom up. Yeah. I mean, you know, the next program that I wanted to talk about was UMass and Greg Carville going in there and winning five games his first season at UMass. And, you know, he inherited recruits too, uh, but he also had to continue to build on top of that. So obviously Kale McCarr was committed before he came there. Says a lot about Kale McCarr that he kept his commitment uh, uh, to, to go there and, and to go play for Greg Carville. And it obviously did benefit, did benefit him developmentally to go there, having a guy that had coached at the NHL level in, in Carville, who was with the Ottawa Senators for a time and then came over from St. Lawrence University. 
but you, you know, they, they, we talk about it a lot, the hashtag new mass, and it was not a program that was really on the map in terms of national powers. And now with two consecutive frozen four births, uh, they are very much in that discussion now with, with a chance to only build more. So, I, I mean, you've been, a, you, you're, you're out East, you know, you've seen these programs, you, you, you are certainly familiar with what UMass was before. I mean, how, how special is it for what they've been able to accomplish in, you know, basically five years of, of the Carvel regime? It's a dramatic difference. I mean, you don't have to go back very far. They had eight straight years where they finished eighth or lower in hockey East, which, you yeah. know, they, they were struggling. They were at the bottom. And now here they are uh, with the national championship rematch on, on Thursday night that uh, I think everybody considers a toss-up game. So um, it, it's really telling. It's also telling, I think, when you, you look at the fact that they're doing it without Kale McCarr this time and without John Leonard and, and Mario Ferraro and, and Mitchell Chafee. And it's a, a different team, but still a Greg Carville team that uh, – that has earned its way here and has had the kind of season that now we've come to expect from them. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing to, to see what the, the way that they've played this season in particular, winning the hockey East tournament, winning, you know, all these games, they've had tight games and Philip Lindbergh, their goaltender has been phenomenal, but this is also a team that was able to shut the opposition down, was able to slow down opposing offenses while not really sacrificing much on their own. They've had other players step up like uh, Gusevich and scoring 17 goals so far this season after uh, a grad in a grad transfer year from, from St. Lawrence, where, you know, he initially made contact with Greg Carville before. And this is the second St. Lawrence guy that's been able to come to UMass and, and make an impact for, for him uh, thinking of uh, Jacob Pritchard as well. So, you know, I think that there is a lot of uh, excitement around that program and rightfully so they've got a tough test in, in Minnesota Duluth, which, you know, was had a dominant national championship performance two years ago. There's a lot of different faces on both teams now, um, but we'll, we'll have to see. But I cannot wait for that coaching matchup in particular. Uh, but we've got another good one in the early semifinal as well. And you mentioned Brett Larson kind of came into St. Cloud State. He inherited the program that Bob Motzko had built, probably inherited one of the best St. Cloud State teams ever um, in the one that went, went was at the number one overall seed two years ago. They lose in the first round to AIC. Um, and have had, you know, last year was a bit of a, a down year, but you look at what they've accomplished and with both old and new players in this program, the recruits that, that came in, you know, for, for Brett Larson as well, they are right here. They, they won the bean pot, essentially. They, you know, they, they got through Boston college and Boston university, um, in, in the, in the regionals, they are going to be without Easton Brodzinski, who's their top goal scorer. But, you know, this is a program that has really continually shown that they can be consistent, that they can bring in top end recruits like Ryan Paling and now Vidi Mietinen. Um, so I just, you know, based on what you've seen from from St. Cloud this year and, and having to go through the crucible that is the NCHC, you know, what what have you seen from that group that uh, suggests that they, they are very much contenders in this uh, in this tournament? They seem very resilient. It doesn't seem like much gets gets them down. They, they can uh, come back they they allow the first goal to, to bc and then come back and, and really dominate that game from that point yeah. on um, i to me that was a really impressive performance um, in terms of slowing down a team that has so many weapons and, and can do so many things offensively and they just really couldn't get it going against st cloud st cloud was able to to dictate the pace of that game in a lot of the same ways that minnesota state was able to do against minnesota 
I know you'll you'll touch on those guys next, but uh, but on the St. Cloud front, I, I just think um, there seems to be no weaknesses, and there there are, maybe aren't the headliners like the Jimmy Schultz right. and uh, and Blake Lazatz, but um, but they're deep and they're strong top to bottom. They are. They really are, and they they have a lot of veterans, a lot of guys that have been through the struggles of the program at times when they they seemed like they had everything all together and and couldn't put it together in the postseason, and now. Here they are, their second ever Frozen Four. And before before I move on, I mean, you know, you can also see the hallmarks of what has made Minnesota Duluth successful. And obviously, Brent Brett Larson was brought up in that program as a coach with Scott Sandel, and had, you know, obviously the success that they had together at Minnesota Duluth allowed him to come into the situation in St. Cloud. But I mean, you can see a lot of those similarities. And so, not only is it important. Uh, you know, for, for Scott Sandlin who have built a program where the players move on, he's obviously helped his coaches, you know, his coaching tree is starting to grow as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And let's not forget there, there's a long history in college hockey of teams falling short and then coming back and winning, maybe when it didn't look like they were quite as strong as, as they were before. And I, I think my, you know, my first job was at Michigan state and they look at the 1986 championship as very much that, that 85 was the super team didn't quite make it. And, and then 86 was able to come back and win it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are going to get to that because Nate has been everywhere, man. So uh, we are, we are going to get to that too, but, but, you know, we, we did kind of briefly touch on them, but I definitely want to get uh, you know, a full accounting of, of what's happened at Minnesota state and Mike Hastings, you know, he's, he's coached. At, he was, he was a winning coach at the USHL level. He's been a winning coach at the college level, but they, until this season, could not break through in the NCAA tournament. They had made six trips under Hastings to the national tournament. Um, and finally in the sixth and seventh overall for the program, they break through with a dramatic overtime win over Quinnipiac. And, and I, I know they sent me the pronunciation of that. I still, I'm still struggling. Uh, but either way um, they, you know, they, they had this tr- tremendous win against Quinnipiac and then dominate, the University of Minnesota, which was one of the fastest teams in the country, one of the more skilled and one of the most draft, one of the teams with the most draft picks. And here they come and they shut them out in such a classic Mike Hastings style game where they are playing with pace. They are pushing the pace. And, you know, it's it's nice to see them finally break through. We saw a great video of Mike doing the, the dramatic fist pump in the locker room that uh, he's been made fun of all week for. And, uh, and, 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 Hey, you earned it, Mike. So be happy about it. But, you know, it, it, it's so great to see a program like that break through and they've got a lot of special things going on there. So this is a team from the WCHA, which, you know, doesn't get a lot of respect anymore. Obviously used to be one of the great conferences, uh, but they have shown that they can hang with anybody. They have, and, and I like what you said there in terms of how they played that game. They did take it to Minnesota. They they attacked. Right. They weren't. It wasn't sit back and trap the whole thing and and clog up the the entire game. Uh, in, in a way, it reminded me of what Bemidji did to Wisconsin because 100%, yeah. Bemidji gets that reputation of of clogging things up and being hard to play against. They went at Wisconsin and, and really, uh, I thought, dictated the pace of play in a positive way um, in terms of. Uh, what they were able to do in the first round. So it, it really spoke well to the, what the WCHA could do in this tournament with those two teams, both uh, winning and obviously Minnesota State getting to the uh, the Frozen Four. 
I, I think it makes for a great matchup with St. Cloud State because there's so many parallels here. You know, it used for to sure. be St. Cloud State that couldn't get through the first round of the NCAA tournament. And, and then they finally did make it to Pittsburgh in 13. Um, now Minnesota State finally breaks through and they're in Pittsburgh this year. So um, they both get upset. What, what I think a lot of people would think of as upset wins against high-powered teams in Minnesota and Boston College. So it sets up for a great matchup in the semifinals. It certainly does. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to touch on with Minnesota State is I think that's a program that showcases the importance of development and, and what they've what they've done, because you don't always get the top recruits. And one of the things that you can do when you get guys that are going to stay for four years is that you give them a, a, a place to succeed in to grow. And then they've sent so many players with free agent contracts or the players that do come in that have draft rights do move on. Um, and that's another great credit to my casing. So, you know, I think that one of the things that has been proven over time is whether it's, you know, a, a Minnesota State or a Minnesota or Boston College, Boston University, there is a training ground available to players that can get them to the NHL. And I, I think we're going to see that with a few players on this current Minnesota State team as well. But I just wanted to throw that in there as, too, because, I mean, I think that that's they're, they're kind of one of those teams that might not get all the, the publicity, but they do a phenomenal job of development. And that's kind of an across the board thing in, in college hockey these days. College hockey works for all sorts of different players. And that's one of the messages that we preach at College Hockey Inc. You can be a first rounder, you can be Kale McCarr and, and get something positive out of your college hockey experience, or you can, can come in unheralded and, and develop over those four years and, and be undrafted during your draft year, but all of a sudden four years later have 30 teams knocking down your door. Yeah. In some ways it's more fun to be a free agent at that <laughs> point. You get to control your, control your, uh, your destiny there and, and your future. And, and we've seen it time and time again, you know, we had Connor Mackey last year, who was one of the guys at Minnesota state. I think we're going to see that with Akito Hiroshi and maybe Jake Livingstone and, and some other guys that have kind of come in there. Um, you know, and certainly we, we didn't mention him, but Dryden McKay is the only Hobie Baker Patrick uh, finalist that will be in the frozen four. Um, he is a tremendous goaltender for Minnesota state and another guy where kind of overlooked a little bit on the undersized side for a goaltender. And here he is one of the best goalies in the country. Yeah. Two shutouts away from the Ryan Miller's career record, which is uh, seemed untouchable at some point. So uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, abs absolutely. So, all right. Well, before we move on to some other things, I, I think this one is really close to call. I don't want to put, you have your own podcast and I'll let you, uh, I want you to save some content for that. And please do listen to college hockey today with, with Nate Ewell and, and Brad Schlossman, who was on last week, as I mentioned, a, a great comprehensive look at everything. So we want to leave a little meat on that bone, but I mean, you know, th this, this showcase, you know, they might not be name brand teams. They might not be, uh, you know, well-known outside of hockey, but certainly they've created some, some great things there. And I just wonder, you know, what, what are your expectations for the frozen four? I mean, you really never do know what to expect, but I think that these teams, how evenly matched they are, I really don't know what to expect. Not at all. And, and tune into my podcast. I will also chicken out on making a prediction in that. <laughs> but, so don't expect me to here. Um, but uh I, I do expect close games. I think, um, you know, I, I had an expectation in the 2019 championship game of, of a real great matchup between Minnesota Duluth and, and UMass that didn't materialize. I think now you're going to get a UMass team that 
is a little more comfortable and, and knows what to expect a little bit more and, and maybe can, uh, can break through some of that Minnesota Duluth uh, stifling way of playing that, that uh, didn't give them much in that game. I think, I think you'll see a little bit more back and forth and, and um, kind of a tug of war in, in terms of those two. Um, the first game, I think it's going to be fantastic. It's going to, it's, it's a great story if you're from Minnesota, but I think the rest of us can all enjoy it as well. Um, and, and then hopefully we get a great final. Hopefully, you know, what we should say, I guess, is hopefully we get three games Yeah, because you yeah. never know. But uh, right. I think if right. we do, we're in for some good ones. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, certainly with, with how things went with the, with the regionals and, you know, losing some teams, we're, we're, we're very, very hopeful that things have happened. And, and, you know, definitely one of the things that, that I put in my college hockey preview is we owe quite a debt of gratitude to the players, administrators, um, the equipment managers, the athletic trainers, um, the coaches, obviously everyone that, that really, made this season happen as much as it was able to happen. Obviously not everybody played. We're a little, you know, we're feeling a little incomplete in terms of not having the Ivies and not having some of the ECAC teams and not having the Alaska schools. It's, it's a little a bit of an incomplete season. I think we have to kind of remember that too about this season is that this, you know, this was not an easy road to get here, but as we hope, hope and expect to get there uh, to the final, you know, I think we're just lucky at this point that there was a season to enjoy. I've been really fortunate, I think, to to be able to to get done what we've been able to get done. And I know certainly from your perspective, watching prospects all over the world, it's it, it hasn't been this easy for everybody. And and it's not easy at all. It's hard work, right. but it, it's uh, it's produced results. Yeah, I think it's a huge credit to the infrastructure that exists in college athletics as a whole, too, that they have the medical personnel, that so that they have the facilities, that they have the staff, the size of the staff, and that they you know, they understood the importance of getting these student athletes out there and uh, made the sacrifices that they had to make. So, um, yeah, but that's, uh, can't wait for the frozen four. Um, you know, it's going to be exciting to see it all unfold with this group of teams. All right. One of the other reasons that I wanted to have Nate on is that he has had a really unique career in the sport. He has had a lot of different opportunities. And, and I think it's, one of those things that just proves that there's no one way into hockey. There are so many ways, obviously everybody dreams of, of, of playing or coaching or, you know, being on and impacting the game that way, but there are so many other opportunities. And obviously, you know, I kind of came in through the PR wing and one of the people that I really looked up to in that, in that regard was Nate because Nate had developed a career in PR. He went from college, he went to the NHL, um, you know, and obviously he's back with College Hockey Inc. doing something unique. So, so Nate, I wanted to ask you before all of that. You know, you 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 went to school at Princeton, uh, and I know where went, but where did hockey and college hockey? When did that all start for you, where that became a passion of yours? Well, it, it's a familiar story in ways to yours, Chris, and that's that my dad was was the biggest influence for me, and and he was the guy that that introduced me to the game. My dad was a women's college hockey coach, so. I spent all of my formative years following him around to rinks, mostly around New England and the East Coast, because at that time, that's the only place that women's college hockey was played. Right. But he was at, at Colby College in Maine for a while and then moved on to Princeton. And, uh, and he spent six years there. And then he, he got out of college coaching and went back to, to the prep school level. But um, being around those teams was what introduced me to the game. My favorite players growing up were women's college players. And, mm. um, 
more so even than than when I was really little in Maine, I, I would watch the Bruins, but my favorite player was Alicia Curtin on the, the Colby College team because she was the, my dad's leading scorer. Um, it, it, uh, it was the greatest way to grow up. I, I look now and I see, I see college coaches and their kids, and I'm so jealous of those kids that get to experience what I got to. I, I know how special it was uh, to have those people to look up to and to, to be able to spend your weekends in the ranks like that. Um, obviously I, I followed in his footsteps in a lot of ways going to Princeton, which where he had coached and, um, and obviously getting into the game was, was a, uh, an easy decision for me once it, it availed itself as a possibility. Yeah. So you go, you get your Princeton degree and the, you're like, I got to stay in college hockey. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I'm the, so I am the least successful person in my class. There's no question. <laughs> Well, that's debatable. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll let, we'll let the audience decide after they hear all the cool stuff that you've gotten to do in your career. But, but, you know, I think that, that, um, you know, so you go there and then you had an opportunity to, to become the SID at, at Michigan state. So did you start with the, the men's program at Princeton? Were you working the kind of the college communications as like the student route at that point before moving on? Yeah, I worked in the press box and um, I did all, everything from PA announcing to, uh, to shot chart to out of town scores, whatever they needed, basically was working those games. And, and um, uh, I was lucky enough the day after I graduated, I flew out to Michigan state to interview there. And, um, and I got into Ron Mason's office and that's a pretty intimidating place. And he mm. said, well, Toot Cahoon from Princeton says you're a good guy. So you're a good guy by me. And uh, it, it turns out a few years later, I went into George McPhee's office and he said, Ron Mason says you're a good guy. So you're a good guy by me. <laughs> yeah. It, it just pays off, you know, as you make these relationships and um, it continues. But uh, but yeah, that was a, a great transition to go from Princeton to Michigan State because it opened my eyes to a whole nother level of college sports. You know, mm -hmm. I was able to see the, the positive aspects of, of college and, and college life at Princeton and, and all the things you can get out of that college experience. And then I was able to go to a big 10 environment and see, wow, <laughs> this is so much more in terms of the attention and the, the fan bases. Uh, the first, first thing I, I did out there was uh, work a football game. So 75,000 people, I'd never seen anything like that at Princeton stadium. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh it is, it's a whole, it's a whole new world. And then you're, you know, but you're, you're around one of the elite programs in college hockey as well. And around Ron Mason and around, you know, really the, the glory days of the CCHA. I mean, I, I think like the mid nineties and that was just such a cool time for college hockey. I mean, you had those great Michigan, Michigan state teams and um, certainly, you know, some of the, the, the elite powers, but I mean, just being around a program like that, being around Ron Mason, um, that had to be such a, a great place to kind of grow your passion for the game and, and getting a better understanding of the game when, when you're around a program like that. And I just wonder what that, that whole experience was like. Yeah. I just tried to soak up as much as I could. I mean, to be somebody fresh out of college and learning from Ron Mason every day was, was amazing. And, yeah. um, and not just him, but the, the other people that were around, you know, Mike York was a star player on those teams, Chad Alban, Ryan Miller was a freshman my last year there, Sean Horkoff, guys that have gone on to great things and, and were great college players. So um, it was really fortunate. Um, I had some other good influences there, you know, uh, just to be in, in an environment where Nick Saban's the football coach and Tom Izzo's the <laughs> yeah. basketball coach. You, I didn't work as closely with those programs, but 
still you're you're around it and you can soak things up so uh that certainly helped as well yeah that's that's amazing and i got um, to golf with nick saban i can say that whoa oh okay <laughs> what is it like to golf with nick saban uh he says i had a five a lot out of five <laughs> I, I don't I'm pretty sure he didn't but <laughs> out of five <laughs> all right yeah so that's uh that's pretty good but yeah. So, so you, you know, you, you're at Michigan state. Now you had a very uh, unique friendship that developed while you were in East Lansing as well. And people have now learned about him through his exploits as a coach with a small franchise called the Tampa Bay lightning. I mean, so you knew John Cooper before he was coach John Cooper. Is correct. That correct. Correct. He was not a hockey coach. So I, I get a lot of questions from people like, tell me about Coop and, and what makes him such a good coach. And I say, I don't know. He wasn't a coach when I knew him. <laughs> he was a lawyer and he was a struggling lawyer at that. So uh, um, yeah, it, it, really fortunate. Obviously like me, somebody who loved the game and, and was around the program. I think one of the, the neat things about a place like East Lansing is that it's big enough that you have 6,000 people at every game, but it's small enough that you can go to the, coach's radio show and have a beer with them afterwards right and yeah john was one of those guys he he was just around the program a lot and got to know him uh, uh eventually he ended up buying a condo and needed a roommate so i was able to hitch on and, and uh rent a room from him for a while and um just a, a fantastic person as everybody knows now in hockey and uh, i wish i could say that i could could sense some sort of coaching genius there but uh, uh it certainly was there yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, and, and, and John Cooper is just one of those guys. I mean, I, I first became aware of him when he was with St. Louis, um, you know, after they had moved up from, from Texarkana and uh, you know, like he, he, he was obviously one of those guys that was around I, when I was the Brian Fishman intern uh, at USA hockey, he was the coach of the, I think it was the, either the Holinka team or the select 17 team. And just talking to him on the phone, he just made you feel good. Like, yep. you know, like I just, I was just trying to get a quote from him and he was just, and he was funny and all that other stuff. And, and everyone just, just loved the guy. And, you know, I, you can just see that that has continued. He's kind of the same person, you know, like he's, he's kind of kept that same person. I'm sure there's, you know, a little more stress, maybe a little less hair, a little, you know, and obviously <laughs> there were some tough times, uh, uh, you know, getting to that Stanley cup that they ultimately won. But, um, you know, you've, you've had a couple of cool experiences to be able to watch people that you've been connected with win the Stanley cup, because once you, so was it, was it right after Michigan state or was there a gap in there? Cause then you ended up going to the Washington capitals in, you know, in the, in the, what, in the mid two thousands about that you got there early two thousands initially. So I, I had a, a little bit of a meandering path there. I, I went to okay. us lacrosse briefly and I was the editor of lacrosse magazine. That's the other sport, my other love. And yeah. my dad, when he was college coaching was a, was a hockey and lacrosse coach. So um, always loved the, the game of lacrosse and certainly at Princeton had a, a great uh, team to, to learn from there. Um, very short stint as the editor of, of lacrosse magazine. And then uh, I got a call that, that the caps were hiring. So I went over there, uh, worked there in 2000 to 2002 and uh, had, took a little bit of time off and then went back there in 2005. So um, that was sort of my, my path there with a, a little interruption to go work at the Olympics and uh, try and, think that maybe I could make a career in something other than sports, which I obviously couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I keep dragging you back in, but you return to the Washington capitals. And at that same time, 
uh, Alex Ovechkin is <laughs> becoming Alex Ovechkin. So um, what was that like in those early days of being able to, to, to be around Ovi? Obviously, you know, as your career progressed, you almost became like the de facto Ovi handler, um, you know, for, for a bit there. So I, I just wonder what that was like to kind of be on the front end of what has been, you know, Hall of Fame career and a, a potentially record-breaking career as well. Hugely lucky, basically. Yeah. And, and yeah. that you could say that about so much of, of my experience in, in the game, just be lucky to being lucky of where I am. But uh, um, to, to come back to the Caps just as Ovi was starting, you got to see uh, this bundle of energy and, and um, really what everybody sees as, as Ovi on the ice extends to Ovi off the ice. He's, he's really authentic. I think in, in the way that he expresses his joy for the game, because it, it transcends the ice and, and you see it off the ice too. I was lucky enough to, to basically um, be with him every step of the way for his first five years, six years of his career. And uh there was a point there at the end of his, his rookie year, he basically wasn't saying no to anything. And, and it was really great as a PR guy to have a superstar that, that will do anything you ask. Um, but he, he also wasn't saying no to community appearances, sponsorship appearances, anything like that. So George McPhee said, we need to kind of get this under control. Nate, you have to do it. Which was great for me. Like basically, yeah. I, I got to be the the gatekeeper for Ovi, and and um, I was really lucky to to be in that role, and um, just to to witness everything that that he became, and and uh, it's been great to now follow once I've left to see what else he can do, and and obviously, you know, we don't even know how far he can go in terms of goal scoring and things like that. Yeah, I mean, what a what a what a great thing to just kind of be able to see so up close. And then, you know, obviously, and in that situation too, Ovi obviously has to trust you and, and kind of where, where you're going with things. So, I mean, just what was that, what was that kind of relationship like of, of having to be like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that was just a full-time thing on its own, just handling requests for Ovi. Everybody wants a piece of this guy. ESPN wants him to do this commercial. We want him for this cover. We want, you know, the local paper needs him for this. And then, so, I mean, just, you know, building that relationship and, 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 and kind of having to do that. I mean, that, that could not have been an easy task for you to, to accomplish over those years. It wasn't, but, but he made it easy. I think um, because of the person he is and, and, um, and one of the things that I, I, I think gets lost in translation as, as Americans watch Ovi and see Ovi, you don't recognize just how smart he is. He's brilliant. Um, and I think because of the language barrier, that gets lost a little bit. Um, he's somebody that you never have to tell something to twice. He, he remembers everything. He's really sharp. Um, he's really got great instincts. So a lot of times I'd say things like, um, you know, it would be good if you did this or, you know, we should do that. And he's like, yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) So he was a step ahead of me in a lot of cases and a lot of, a lot of situations, um, which really made the transition easy. I was lucky too, that we, you know, great staff around, uh, Kirk Keel was my boss who was awesome. Um, and and could really, you know, we had a very active owner in Ted Leonsis and and Mm -hmm. Kirk could, could manage that. And then, you know, Bruce Boudreau comes in and we have a very active head coach who doesn't say no to things. And, and I had Paul Rovnak on staff who could handle everything that was related to Bruce. He became sort of the Bruce gatekeeper while I was the OB <laughs> gatekeeper. And 
um, just really lucky. I, you know, I had, uh, had the right people around and, and that includes Ovi. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, the other thing too, is you guys obviously did a good job because when you were with it, with the capitals and one of the things that when I was in public relations at USA hockey, you know, we're looking at how everybody does things and it's like, well, people should be doing things the way the capitals do things. Cause you guys were winning like the Dillman awards, which the media gives to the, to, you know, the, the PR staffs that they think do the best job. And I think you guys won it several years in a row there. Um, you know, so, you know, and, and one of the things it's, it's been tough, obviously I've been on both sides of it being on the media. We obviously want access to everything. And then being on the PR side, I understand the reasons why we can't have access to everything. But I would say that even now in, in, in your current role at college hockey, Inc, you have always been a very media friendly, you know, person where you want to give us the, the best information. You want to give us the most help that you can. Um, you do help us do our jobs better. So, I mean, what, what was it like just kind of building that staff or being part of that staff as you guys were, you know, essentially one of the most popular teams in the league, one of the most sought after teams in the league, and yet still having the faith of the media that you are effectively serving on in addition to serving your own team's interests. It is it- sports PR is a, a pretty delicate balancing act where you're, it is. you're serving two masters in a way and, um, and really trying to deliver the best experience for your team and the best experience covering your team for the media. And, and obviously those things don't always go hand in hand, but I, I think we were fortunate coming in, you know, when Ovi came and, and I, you know, forgetting the first couple of years that I was with Washington more so the, my second stint, um, when Ovi came in, we weren't very good and we weren't getting much coverage and there was attention on him, but it was manageable because we, we were such a bad team on honestly, like, yeah. um, there wasn't, a, it wasn't overwhelming. Then as it became overwhelming, we had established this relationship, uh, with the media where they knew we were there to help them. And, and one of the things I always tried to do is never come right out of the bat and say, no. And I think there are a lot of sports PR people who want to put up roadblocks and and that's their initial reaction is to say, no, what we tried to do, we we weren't able, you're never able to accommodate every request, but we didn't want to say no right off the bat because that really turns people off. And I I think we tried to find a way to help. Um, Could we always do everything that the people wanted? Absolutely not. But um, we tried to find a way to make it work for, for the media as well as for the team. Yeah. And that, that, that does go a long way in terms of building that relationship because it is, it is such a delicate balance. And it, you know, I, 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 I get frustrated by it sometimes on my side of things when, when there are roadblocks put in place, but it is, it's just one of those things that's, it's part of the business, but you know, and I think, you know, Nate's experience is so good here for, for the listeners, especially if you're, you, you know, you're trying to find your way in hockey and, and Nate, you've, you've kind of done the same thing that I've done. You've been on both sides too, because you were also the, you know, running inside college hockey, you know, and I, I, that's for those that don't remember inside college hockey was one of the best sources of information for, for in-depth college hockey news and analysis. And you guys, you know, you had a partnership with ESPN at a a point in time where all of a sudden you were getting this, this, this top quality information. And obviously it was, it was a group of people that were super passionate about college hockey and wanted to do the best. And, and you know, we, we still have people like that now, but that was a, a moment in time. I, I just wonder if you could kind of take me back. Cause that was 
so that was part that started like right around that gap, right? Yes. Between the between stints with the capital. So so I guess you know what was that like? Kind of you you had this steady job with with the Washington Capitals, and then what happened next? So after I, I left the Caps to go work for NBC at the Olympics, I came back and thought, okay, I can get out of sports now. I've been to the top. I've been to the NHL. I've been to the Olympics. Let me move on. And and I got a job actually editing Home Plan magazines. Um, <laughs> I, okay. which is uh, curious <laughs> and quite a departure. Um, I quickly realized that uh, I missed this hockey thing. <laughs> I yeah. really needed, you needed to scratch this itch a little bit. So uh, uh, Mike Idlebus, who was in a similar situation, uh, had gotten out of the game and, and kind of needed back in. And, and uh, we had always talked about sort of things we'd like to see if, if, if we were covering the sport. So uh, we just, we tackled it and, and we just tried to do the best things we could. Um, in a lot of ways, we were ahead of our time. You know, we were doing a podcast yes. in 2002. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Which I don't know if anybody actually listened to it now that I think that <laughs> I don't know if people knew how to get podcasts then. Um, but uh, uh, we, we got that, got that going. Um, we were doing things that were sort of social media ish before social media existed. And um it was a lot of fun. It was just, it was great to a great Avenue to try things out. Yeah. And it was, it was innovative. And you, you know, it, the thing that I always enjoyed about it was that there was a little something for everybody in there that you could find, you could find different things that, you know, you might not care about this team or that team, but you might have like the front, was it the fries at the bottom of the bag? Was yep. that the, that was the one which I, I love that, you know, analogy for, for what that was is like, here are these, and I still do that. I do that on my, on my newsletter now on, on hockey sense with Chris Peters, uh, as we plug that once again for the 50th time, this podcast, but you know, it's like, that's those stray thoughts. And there's so, there's so many good little nuggets in there that, you know, you might not have a full story for, but there's, there's a place for that. And yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, and that's, that just to me is another example of kind of, you know, you're, you, you, you try, even when you try to get out, you really can't you, right. like you, this, this game has its hooks in, in, in you, it has its hooks in me. I did the same thing, try to do something else. And it just, it, you, you just can't stay away from it for long. But I think that one of the things about that is, is that I think college hockey is one of those ties that really binds even tighter than, you know, necessarily, we all have our favorite NHL teams. We all have our, our allegiances and things of that nature, but um, there's something, there's something different about college hockey. Have you ever been able to put your finger on what makes it special to you? Not exactly. No. And I think, it's almost better that it's elusive, but, but mm, there is yeah. something special about the community. Um, you know, I get asked a lot, why would you ever leave? And I, John Cooper asked me all the time, why did you leave this league? He's like, we're flying in private jets. Like this is, I got my name on the Stanley cup. Now, why'd you ever leave this league? And, and to me to get back in the college game was, was a special opportunity. And especially in, in the role that I'm in to be able to promote college as a whole and, and mm -hmm. kind of try and elevate the sport. Um, it, it's really, uh, it, it's a good fit. Um, I think events like the frozen four are, are, are really unique and a chance to, to get that community together and, and sort of, uh, uh, celebrate for a weekend is, uh, is a big deal. And it's, it's a big part of what makes it so special. Yeah. I well said, cause I, I, I agree. I, I find it elusive as well. It, you know, I grew up, I didn't go to a school that had college hockey at the division one level. Um, you know, I did have the, the University of Illinois, Chicago uh, in my in my backyard and I went to plenty of those games and there was just, all, you know, 
you think about it, it's all all the things, the bands, the the passion that the game is played with, the community that has been created around college hockey, which is is small, passionate, and and loud, and and they they also a lot of good drinkers in that group too. Yeah, Love seeing those people. <laughs> can help. Yeah, that helps. You know, you, you know a lot of. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You also had the, uh, the inch also had the, the notes on the cocktail napkin too. Yeah. Right. Wasn't that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, that's, that's, that's handy for those reasons as well, but Neil Kepke inspired. That's right. And Neil, Neil, an absolute legend. Um, and hopefully he's listening to this so that he could hear us call him an absolute legend, but for sure. one of the great journalists that cover the game and, and one of my personal favorite people, he's, he's one of the ties that binds for sure. Because, he is, uh, people yeah. like Neil Kepke, Bill Brophy, like these yes. are the guys that that you're so excited to see when you get back to a Frozen Four or, or a regional or any event like that. I mean, um, it, it is it's probably the people. I mean, when you get down to it, that's what makes college so special. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 Neil for both of us is one of those one of those people. And Bill too, and and Bernie Corbett, and all kinds yeah. of people. You just you you run into them, and and it's like no time is lost. But but yeah, well, well, Nate you know, before we get out of here, I did want to, you know, kind of ask you a little bit more, you know, we're, we're heading into, you know, this has been the, the weirdest season that you could ask for. Um, but it's going to be really exciting as we head towards the NHL draft, which is another opportunity for college hockey Inc often to showcase, you know, what the college game is, is all about. And we're going to have, you know, several college connected players, not just current college players, but many that are recruits that are coming in. I mean, this, this draft is really shaping up to be an exciting one for anybody that loves college hockey, because you've seen these players all year and you've certainly been tracking that. I mean, what, you know, what are some of the things that you're most looking forward to in the college hockey off season as we head towards the NHL draft? So as you said, I'm a Michigan state guy, at least I'm an adopted mm -hmm. I'm an adopted Spartan because I spent right. four years there after college. <laughs> so I, I consider, I didn't take any classes, but it's kind of a, my post-grad degree. Uh, it takes a lot for me to root for Michigan. In fact, it may not have never happened before, but uh, <laughs> um, I was telling Chris Mayotte there, there's something special about this team because I couldn't stop watching. I mean, right. as you know, following prospects, there's, there's something special when you can get these kind of players together in one, one team. And I couldn't help, but, but hope for the best for them. I was heartbroken at, at how their season ended. Um, I, I do a lot of, a lot of what I do with college hockey Inc is research. So I'm looking into um, looking into the past drafts and things like that. And one of the things I did recently was compile a list of the most college players taken in X number of picks, whatever it was. So out of the first five, how many were college players? And I realized after I did it, I should have just waited till after this draft because it's all going to be broken this year. <laughs> it's all going to, right. it's going to be four out of five, you know, seven out right. of 10. It's going to be crazy to, to see. And most of them will be on the same team. Which is right. even more remarkable, but uh, um, I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to, to follow as college fans and, uh, Boy, it'll be a lot of fun if we can get a couple of those guys back for another year too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Michigan's going to have Matty Beniers, Owen Power, Kent Johnson in some order, Luke Hughes, incoming player, you know, Mackie Samuskevich. I mean, just, the list goes on of, of players that are going to get there. And then, you know, I think they're, the other thing that we've seen in college hockey too is a lot of second and third year eligible guys are starting to get picked by teams. They're, they're not waiting for them to go to the college free agency route. Some are purposely doing that kind of gambling a little bit, but I think what we've found is that some of these guys that you draft later on, you know, you look at like a Craig Smith, the guy that 
you know, passed through multiple drafts and, and then, you know, had a brilliant NHL and ha- is having a, a brilliant NHL career. Um, you know, late, late, late picks like Joe Pavelski. I mean, there, there are all kinds of, of different players that are going to come through the college ranks that, that are here. But yeah, I mean, this draft in particular could be one of the best um, for college hockey. So I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun and we'll certainly be looking forward to the work that you're doing. And um, you know, we, Nate, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have you. I mean, it's also been great to, to have our chats and uh, over the years, certainly at the frozen four, going to miss you this year. Um, as, as I'm sure every, you know, we missed everybody last year. So, right. uh, you know, but we're, we're going to be, we're going to be in smaller number this time around, but uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. And, and thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story. Really my pleasure, Chris. And, and it's always fun to talk hockey and, and we just happen to record it this time. That's all. Yeah, exactly. We got to do this more often. Right. Just, I'm just going <laughs> to hold up my phone next time. So yeah. All right, Nate. Well, thanks a lot. Enjoy the frozen four and uh, thanks for all the great work that you do. Once again, my thanks to Nate Ewell for joining me on the podcast. He is such a wealth of information and I thought great insight. So I was really thankful to have him on here. Make sure you check out his work at collegehockeyinc.com. Also, you can follow him on Twitter at Nate Ewell. And uh, yeah, just what a a great guy to to have on uh, to kind of talk about all these different things. But we're going to move on from the Men's Frozen Four and talk about some of the other news that has kind of been trickling around my world in terms of you know prospects olympics college hockey um junior hockey all those different things and the first is that we we learned last week that usa hockey has named stan bowman officially as the general manager for the men's olympic team in 2022 also bill garen is the assistant general manager so you've got two experienced executives two guys that have multiple stanley cups as members of front offices bowman with three stanley cups as the general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks, and Bill Guerin has won Stanley Cups as a player. He has won the World Cup of Hockey. He has a silver medal from the Olympics. You know, so a very unique kind of setup where you've got, you know, an experienced executive. You've got a guy that also is a former player, and I believe that Guerin is the first uh, member of that USA Hockey Golden Era, as it was called, uh, that won the World Cup of Hockey and won silver at the 2002 Olympics. You know, he was part of that group and now he's part of the decision making process. And one of the things that came out of their press conference that that I thought, you know, was was especially important is that, you know, Stan Bowman laid out a few things, not a whole lot in detail because they they don't have a coach yet. They don't have, you know, essentially, you know, they're they're just getting started, but they've they've begun the evaluation process. It it's that, you know, this is not a team that's going to be built specifically to beat Canada. Uh, and everybody knows that Canada is the number one team and, and that, you know, in these best on best tournaments, they're the team to chase. Uh, but I think that in years past, USA hockey has focused a little too much on trying to beat Canada by, you know, making a roster that is grittier or harder to play against and, and sacrificed a lot of skill in the process. That certainly happened at the World Cup of Hockey, which, you know, the U.S. wasn't really able to get their best players because some of them were playing for Team North America. And that is actually why I think Stan Bowman is 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 a very good choice for this U.S. team. It, it doesn't have as much to do with the Stanley Cup success that he had with the Chicago Blackhawks, though that matters. Um, obviously, I think Blackhawk fans are, are kind of frustrated with the, the current plight of the team. And... Rightfully so, but you look at what Bowman did when he was the co-GM of Team North America with Peter Shirelli, and that was a team that was, you know, they they had a disadvantage. And, and I asked Bowman about this in the 
in the press conference and he he basically talked about how much things changed over the course of knowing that they were going to be leading that team to when they actually had to build the final roster because when they were first named there were no goaltenders age eligible that were starters in the NHL and then that very year before the 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 tournament you know they were able to get Matt Murray, John Gibson and Connor Hellebuck all of whom became NHL starters at that point. Um, and then Gibson eventually kind of became their their go-to goalie and and did very well in that game against Sweden, which is now kind of the signature moment of that tournament and, and of that team. And I think you look at what Bowman did with, with Shirelli and the way that they built that team North America, they fought fire with fire. They did not just try to gum up the, the neutral zone. They didn't try to make this team uh, over to lead defensive because they really couldn't. They just dic- they did what they could with the talent that they had. All the players were under 23 and... Um, you know, it was, it was fascinating to watch and it was fun to watch. And so I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. And it sounds like Bowman took a lot of those lessons to heart. And then you also have Garen who's worn the Jersey and understands what it takes to win at that level. And has won as a player, um, at, at, at the world cup and, and has experienced the Olympics with winning a silver medal in 2002. And, you know, so I think that that really does help build this roster. I think both of these GMs are of a, of a new generation as well compared to the other men that have led this team. I'll be very fascinated to see who they choose as coach. That's one thing they didn't really get into. They, you know, they didn't want to talk about, you know, team identity and things until they figure out who the coach is. I think there's a lot of great candidates for that job right now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who gets the honor to coach this talent pool, because I think the U S has among the most talent that they've ever had to deal with. Um, in in the Olympics, you know, since they've really been doing it, I, I think that this team very much could rival the teams in '98 and 2002, which were you know chock full of those golden generation NHL players. And as we saw in '98, doesn't always matter if you have the most talent. And as we saw in 2002, um, they got very very close uh, and and had a really good team. So uh, we'll see if the U.S. can end the gold medal drought that stretches back to the Miracle on Ice and and certainly the medal drought that stretches back to 2010. And that will be Stan Bowman's job to figure out how to put those teams together. Some other notes, the the World Men's Under-18 Championship is coming up in a few weeks in, in Texas and Canada announced their roster for the team. And if you are following the 2021 NHL Draft, there is not going to be a more important event this season than that 2021 men's world under 18 championship. I will be there for that entire tournament. I'll have some more details very soon about my role at that tournament and some of the other things that you're going to need to know about that tournament. But the Canadian roster was announced and it is loaded. It is going to be one of the best Canadian rosters that they've ever sent to this tournament. And it will include Connor Bedard, the 15 year old sensation that's lighting up the WHL currently and Shane Wright, who was the exceptional player that had a tremendous rookie season, outshining even Connor McDavid's points per game rate as a rookie with the Kingston Frontenacs last season. So they're both on the roster, but then there are a lot of guys for this year's draft that you absolutely have to be aware of. Brent Clark, who spent most of the season in Slovakia. Uh, Francesco Pinelli. We're hoping to see if Carson Lambos is going to be available. He's He's been uh, uh, having some health concerns, but you know those are guys that, that are, are quality players. Dylan Gunther, who's been a, a outstanding in the WHL this season. So Canada is a, normally going to have a, a roster that is, is kind of a little bit you know, less talented because they have players playing in the playoffs. And so they don't get to to build their best team. Now this year, they didn't have any players available to them from the QMJHL. 
Um, I still think that even without those players, this is going to be one of the best rosters that they could have possibly put out there. Um, and, and there's a lot of different players. So, so you see them, you'll see the U.S. Russia is going to have a loaded team. Sweden just announced their preliminary roster with a lot of potential first-round draft picks like Fabian Lysel and Simon Edvinson on that roster. So that is an event that you are absolutely going to want to pay attention to, and I will have a lot more coverage on that on Hockey Sense with Chris Peters on Substack. So again, please subscribe to that if you haven't yet because there's going to be a ton of draft content. Now that we're past the Men's Frozen Four, or will be after this week, we're going to really switch that focus to the draft. We're going to switch that focus to covering the prospects in the AHL and 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 elsewhere and trying to build up those lists that uh, that fans love so much to find out how players are doing and where they stand and how those prospect systems are being built up. So we've got a ton more coming to you. That's going to do it for this week, though. we got to take a break. I'm going to see you in Pittsburgh. I'll have a podcast on Monday. Uh, I'll be recording it Monday probably next week. We'll try to get it out before Wednesday. And uh, a lot happening uh, across the hockey world. We are going to cover all of it as best we can. But I am so appreciative to Nate Ewell for joining me. I'm appreciative of you listening and downloading and rating and reviewing and doing all those great things. And I am having way too much fun doing this. So I hope that you are having fun uh, listening to it as well. That's going to do it for me. This is Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters, and we'll see you next week.